Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and because it's December, we are lucky enough to have the return of professor, former professor, almost soon performer professor, Tom Nichols. Almost, almost, almost done. So it takes a long time to, to exit the federal government, doesn't it? Apparently? It does. It takes yeah. four. They they actually want you to put your papers in four months ahead of time, which tells you, uh, you know, that something about how um, how the wheels of the federal bureaucracy grind slowly. But yes. So I just had a very strange experience. I want to get into your newsletter today. Um, we're basically, you know, grow the F up. It's time for people to be adults. Um uh, which I, I tweeted, I, I was both chastened by your newsletter today, but also persuaded, uh, you know, that we need to take things seriously. Before we do that, though, I just had a very weird experience. You, you know how sometimes um, on social media, um, particularly when I'm scrolling through some of these news feeds, uh, you'll, you'll see a headline pop up and then it disappears and, and mm -hmm. you're not sure what, what it's about. So I, I saw this headline said MSNBC contributor can't believe Biden coronavirus. And then, and then it went away. Okay. <laughs> so I just went, okay. What, what, what was that? Um, who are they, who are they talking about? Is there something that was perhaps surprising about it? So, um, because I put together my newsletter and I have to, you know, chase, chase things down. I actually Googled it. MSNBC contributor can't believe. And guess what? <laughs> It turns out to be me. <laughs> and, and what couldn't you believe? Okay. MSNBC contributor Charlie Sykes reacted negatively Tuesday to reports of the, this is, by the way, Fox News writing about this. Fox News writing a whole story about a tweet I put out. Um, reacted negatively Tuesday to reports the, of the Biden administration's planned measures to fight against any potential winter spread of the coronavirus, calling the reported measures nuts and suggesting they would go too far. And basically, this was a reacting to a report that I think now turns out to be exaggerated, that they were going to tighten the testing for international travelers. You'd have to be tested uh, one day before boarding their flights. That's not the big deal. Um, what got my attention was that uh, that having been fully vaxxed in order to fly and then having been tested the day before you get on the airplane, they were still considering the possibility of quarantines, a seven day quarantine with fines. And so I, what I said was fully vaccinated, negative test, but still quarantined and subject to fines. Look, I'm pro-vax, I'm pro-mandates, I'm pro-social distancing, but this is nuts. So right. anyway, Fox News does I, an entire story about that tweet. Apparently, calmer heads in the Biden administration prevailed and they're not going to have a quarantine for fully vaxxed, tested people. And I just want to put this in context. We have, what, 20 million mega heads running around, unvaxxed, unmasked, and everything, and nobody's talking about quarantine. But if I come back from France and I am triple vaxxed and I have just, you know, tested negative, I have to go into quarantine. Clearly, this is even even you, Tom Nichols, would suggest oh, it's that crazy. This, would, this, this would be a little bit of overreach. Yeah, and you know, I saw your tweet um, yeah. about that, and I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm." In fact, I, I, you know, have gotten into trouble uh, because I was a hard-assed um, mask mandate and vax. I'm still a vaccine mandate guy, yeah. and recently I said, "You know, I think the mask mandates, w whether they work or not, and I, I think they work, but they've politically they seem to have run their course. That that you know that with the vaccines, people are basically now look either get vaccinated or or uh, you know, get the hell out of here. And, um, 
so yeah, I didn't think I didn't think you were criticizing the Biden administration. I think you were criticizing an idea somebody floated that was completely crazy. But you know, there's a there's a second story here, Charlie, which is that there's something going on. I, I at Fox and uh, you know a few other right wing sites where people like you and me have become a beat. Um, I, I, I mean, I find, I find like, you know, like my Twitter feed is like a beat for young Fox reporters or something, you know, or I, 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 cause I thought how many times has this happened? Cause I always know, by the way, and this will actually link back to when we start talking about something else we're going to talk oh, about okay, today, which yeah. is Elhan Omar. But, um, you know, I always know when Fox has mentioned me because I start getting a bunch of really crazy and threatening emails. And there's like a half a dozen stories that are just Fox stories about something I tweeted where then I was nuked, roasted, destroyed, obliterated, you know, whatever it is. And it's this really weird part of the right-wing ecosphere that they just sort of, you know, watch the never Trumpers and, and make stories. I was strangely enough, I was quoted approvingly. It's funny that you were quoted approvingly in Fox. I was quoted approvingly in the New York post, a place that normally hates me um, because I was critical of a, a book about AOC about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. And they're like, oh, see, even Tom Nicholson. I'm like, wow, you know, you guys spend an awful lot of time looking well, I do, at I do, I do need to clarify that I'm not being quoted, I think, favorably. I think there's 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 a lot of dragging the, oh, um, you know, you didn't think the, you know, leopard-eating faces people would come after you. Or you, <laughs> the, the, head, the, head, the head of the Claremont Institute just said, Charlie Sykes, you signed up for all of this. Oh, so I some, love those some, tweets. Here's, here's somebody those. else. I'm, I was pro everything until it affected me personally. Oh, here's, here's another one. Um, let's see. Uh, wh where exactly do you, did you think those stances were going to lead? So uh, were mandates fine? It was just people getting fired from their jobs, but locking them up as a step too far. What do you think was the next logical step from taking a person's livelihood away? Here's somebody oh, else. You mean you were pro jackboot on the throats of others, just not on yours. You reap what you sow. So this is kind oh, of the God. theme. Um, here's another one. Uh, if you're pro mandates, you signed up for all that comes with it. It sucks that you're surprised by it. Uh, Let's see. Uh, you voted for this level of crazy. Enjoy. Here's somebody else. Um, LOL. This is what you bought, pal. Uh, the Twitchy websites devoted an entire thing to this one tweet. Oh, well, Twitchy. Yeah, yeah Twitchy. Um, Twitchy is the um, is the catfish swimming around in the bottom of the um, oh, yeah. aquarium. Yeah. Uh, oh, here, here, so one last one. You own it, Charlie. He's all yours. Hope the check was worth it, you grifting fuck. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, normally a term of endearment that you and I have used many times, yeah, but, yeah. um, you know, the, the thing about this too is it, it really reminds you that, um, these are people for whom tribalism is absolute, that you can never criticize your own side. I, I get those as well. Well, you know, Tom, these are your people now. And I'm like, all right, fine. If they're my people, then I get to criticize them. And, um, unlike, you know, unlike you folks, um, you know, over on the MAGA side who are in a cult and can never criticize the great leader, um, you know, my, my, okay, I'm part of a coalition where we take pot shots and say, Hey, you know, I voted for president Biden, but I hope he doesn't pursue this policy. Cause that would be bad, you know, like in a normal democracy. Well, I, I think your next book should be the death of nuance. We've, we've done the death of expertise, but the whole notion that if you're for some mandates, you must be for all mandates. I mean, this is the logic, right? That that if you think that people should, if, if you work in a, you know, a hospital, be you know, they require people to be vaccinated. Therefore, you would then also support having people who are vaccinated 
locked up and quarantined because that's a complete logical uh, continuation, right? I mean, this is this is the way their brains work. Their brains have been so broken by this that if you are in favor of anything, you must be in favor of everything, right? Well, I mean, but, that, this, but that's but that's an in, but that's a rule they only impose on their opponents. So the same people who say, you know, we have to have these travel bans from Africa because uh, you know these high infection areas have to be, uh, you know. Um, uh, walled off from the rest of us. And then I said, well, here's a map of the United States and uh, there's some pretty low vaccinated high infection areas I'd like to wall off. You want to continue this conversation? Oh, that's a different map. You know, they, they are, they insist on inane logical consistency only when it works to their advantage by forcing it on their opponents. Um, and then when it comes to themselves, they're, they live in a world of exceptions. Um, and what about ism? Yeah, but what about, and that's not what I meant. And um, it's like talking to children. It's like talking to toddlers. I uh, actually, dangerous, I, I, dangerous toddlers. Right, da- dangerous toddlers who are you, you, at some point you go. You know, this I'm not really. This is not really worth my time. So well, since you you know that I've said that, Charlie, it's not. So, we have to stop engaging them. Well, you um, since you use the word inane. Let's talk about your newsletter today. You have a new newsletter for the Atlantic. It's called Peace Field which seems so ironic coming from you. <laughs> it's John Adams. Whole, whole you know, it's thing. the John Adams thing. Yeah. It's but John the OG. Adams is kind of a smash mouth guy. Yeah. And he was the OG Massachusetts curmudgeon. He was right. as, as the musical goes, he was obnoxious and, and disliked. And disliked. That cannot be denied. I see. I was going to ask you about that. So you actually had the obnoxious and disliked thing in the back of your mind when you chose peace. Oh, well, and I, ever since I read uh, McCullough's biography of Adams, um, you know, Adams is kind of the godfather of patriotic conservatives. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, there's Elvis people and there's Beatles people and there's Adams people and they're just Jefferson people. Yeah. And I'm, I'm an Adams guy. I'm an Adams guy as well. And also uh, Beatles, not Elvis. So you can fight that out. There you so go. So y- your, your, your piece today, let's talk about this. Uh, basically, it's uh, grow the fuck up, people. Uh, fight like adults. Um, the Republicans are a threat to democracy. Stow the juvenile theatrics and take them seriously so let, let, let's talk about this because uh, and 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 as we go into this i will admit that i have occasionally strayed into the juvenile theatrics um as I have, have i i've dropped the f-bomb you just you just heard this we've talked about the former guy so make make your case for stowing the juvenile theatrics why well first of all i don't i i don't think there's anything wrong with f-bombs um you know, judiciously used. And as I point out in the piece, um, I'm not against mockery and insulting. I'm because let us recall, I am the person who pioneered the use of the word asshole when talking about JD Vance. Um, and I did it in print in the Atlantic. Um, but there is a kind of juvenile streak in the opposition to Trump and Trumpism with the former guy and Drumpf and the orange menace and mango Mussolini. And, you know, it's all very funny. And Trump is Trump and the rest of them are inherently comical, ludicrous clowns. I mean, there is no doubt about it. You know, you can't, there's something as awful as she is. There's something inherently just funny about Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or Madison, as I say in the piece, or Madison yeah. Cawthorn, who sounds like whose name sounds like a bad, you know, like a minor character in a bad Victorian novel. Um, 
But these people, behind these people, are people who are deadly serious about undermining the Constitution. So while you're having a great time talking about the GQP and the Repugs and the Rethuglicans and acting like an eight-year-old, Jeffrey Bossert Clark is back there trying to unravel democracy. And it's time to grow up. It's time to say this is a job for resolute, uh, and sober-minded adults speaking with um, direction and fierceness and urgency. Okay, I, I just have to, to to confess this because I I agree completely with what you're arguing here. Now, I do like the whole orange menace stuff like that, but there is something about the the Trump stuff or the Rethuglican. Is that Rethuglican yeah, or Rethug? Yeah. Well, Rethuglican's been around for a long I know, time. I know that predates. Yeah. But that's when I stop reading. I, I will. I will admit. Right. I also, if somebody sends me something with the word Republican and then there's three Ks instead of a C, yes. you know, Republic, because that's another. Way I stop reading. And, and also, are you persuading anyone? Are you just self pleasuring here? Well, what is what is going on? And well, and immediately uh, I think, okay, great, thanks. That's an email from some half bright college student somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, or some you know student organizer who's um, you know. Um, a C minus student and everything, but an A in in um, clever emails. And I, and I, as I say in the piece, Charlie, and you saw this, I feel the same way about people on the right. One of the things that started distancing me from fellow conservatives, what even in my friendships, where when people, I remember, you know, a friend of mine started saying, "Yeah, Killery." He was kept saying, "Killery," yeah, I know. Yeah, and I was like, yes. you know, I'm sorry, this isn't a serious conversation. Or um, demon rats, or you know, and yeah. I just went, you know, this this isn't a serious conversation, and the fate of the country is at stake here. And it's time to be, if Democrats and their allies, and I think of myself as one of their allies, not a member of their party. If we're going to turn back this authoritarian tide, we have to be the responsible adults. And that means conducting ourselves and speaking like a, like responsible adults. And that doesn't mean we can't have fun and haul off the occasional zinger and drop the occasional F-bomb. But this other shit's just got to stop. Okay, so I, I got an email. Um, I, I included uh, a link to your newsletter in my newsletter this morning saying that I agreed with you. And Gary uh, wrote to me just a little while ago saying, you know, regarding Tom Nichols, uh, he is, of course, correct. The rhetoric needs to be more grown up. But he needed to further observe that the obfuscation, outright lying, and faux post-presidential preening of President Trump were and are a huge trigger for us antis. Uh, and then he goes on, basically, you know, good that you see Nichols' point. But even saying the term, saying President Trump depresses me beyond words. Yeah, it's well, the sad fact. Well, too goddamn bad. Yeah, get over it. <laughs> um, you know, the the part of being a grown up is that you don't get triggered by this stuff. And every time, uh, you know, one of the things that really bugs me is people say when they when they write Trump with an asterisk or they won't say, "Look, this guy is not a this guy is not a Balrog. He's not a he's not one of the." old ones who must not be named. He's not some, you know, arch demon who will appear. He's just a sad little boy from Queens whose father didn't love him. 
and say his name and remind yourself that that the American people and the American political process put the word president in front of his name. That should depress you. It should scare the shit out of you. And it should make you as serious as a goddamn heart attack about what you're going to do in 2022 and 2024. Yeah, let me read one paragraph that I think captures your mood here. Uh, the 2022 midterms are only a year away, and I fear that many of us are not really ready for the kind of political battle that lies ahead. I suspect, as Michelle Goldberg recently wrote, that we're all exhausted and even in despair. I know that I am, you, you wrote. I was more optimistic about the future of American democracy two years ago than I am today. As MSNBC's Chris Hayes said to Goldberg, I have that, quote, pit of the stomach feeling that we're not okay and it's not clear we're going to be okay. I mean, that's yeah. where you are. So that's, you're less that, optimistic that now than you were two years ago. Ab- absolutely, because I think um, the people Dark. on the right, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's um, – the only person who gets darker than me is our our mutual friend Jonathan Last, yeah. and in part because the the um, people on the right are coalescing, they have learned. You're seeing this with the January sixth commission. They have learned to double down, hunker down, tell everybody to go fuck themselves, and that that works, and that they'll be back. And the that combined with my sense that people on the left and the center. And the center right, who are part of this democracy coalition, they are just not up to this fight. They don't understand how serious this is. They are still, you know, and you and I have talked about this before, Charlie. They are in a circular firing squad. They're, you know, purity testing each other. They're bickering. They just passed this gigantic and um, direly needed infrastructure bill, and Biden can't even get a bump out of it. I mean, it is. This is political malpractice at every level, and I, I just think that we're going to be facing unified Republican government again in twenty twenty four. I really think that's a better than even chance. And if that happens, we're we're way way in deep shit at that point. Yes, we are. So, shall we give an update on medical expertise? Yes. So, should we Should we I, go there? I hear your home state has produced another infectious disease expert. Yeah. um, Senator Ron Johnson, who does not feel at all chagrined about having embraced one wacky conspiracy theory or or medical quackery. Is that that a word, medical quackery? Embracing medical quackery. He's completely unembarrassed by it. Um, So he's doubling down. I'm not even sure which show he's he's on. Maybe he's on Laura Ingram or something like that. But uh, Ron Johnson had some more thoughts about... uh, the coronavirus and and Dr. Fauci. Let's just play this. Killing your host doesn't help you replicate very well. So again, that's sort of the general tendency of viruses. So why would we expect anything different with the the, the coronavirus, except for you want to create a state of fear to keep us in the state of fear to maintain the controls, and that's what you're seeing here in the United States. I mean, by the way, Fauci did the exact same thing with AIDS. He he overhyped it. He created all kinds of fear, saying it could affect the entire population when it couldn't. And he's he's using the exact same playbook for COVID, ignoring therapy, pushing a vaccine. Uh, The solution to this, I've always felt, was early treatment. We still haven't robustly explored that. Dr. Ron Johnson uh, sharing his. So of all the AIDS, yeah, that damn Fauci. He's doing the same well, thing I, he did with AIDS. Couldn't he have gone with like Alar and apples or something like that? Or, you know, the monkey flu or, or something? He had to go with AIDS. That, that was what popped into his mind. 
eight. <laughs> well, and I all I can think of was the eight. general tendency of viruses, yeah. third edition by Ron Johnson, MD, PhD, MOUSC. Um, you know, Ron, Ron Johnson it just assumes the virus is going to behave in a rational. Like, it, yes, it's, it's the, the general rational, tendency. Yeah, the rational self-interest of a virus is not to kill the host, right? I'll Which tell is, you, that was. I know he's from uh, he's from Wisconsin, but um, no, as a Massachusetts good. guy, let me just say that was a real Cliff Clavin moment. You know, uh, you know, Diane, the uh, general tendency <laughs> of your uh, viruses there is uh, not to kill the host, uh, sort of like with Fauci and AIDS. Shut the hell up you moron i mean it is really incredible i did not incredible. know you did a cliff clavin oh uh, it's uh, you all do a great of, cliff uh, it's uh we we massachusetts guys uh, it's a known fact uh, charlie <laughs> that us massachusetts guys can do i'll do cliff clavin uh of course not me here can tell you that okay so this is this opens up all kinds of possibilities we should have a, a, a guest appearance from cliff clavin regularly on the podcast <laughs> or you could just interview ron johnson uh which is the same thing i mean it's just incredible and he, as you say he drags in one of the most dreaded scourges of the past 40 years that has killed so many people and says yeah just like that overblown AIDS, and you know yeah. that that black AIDS. plague thing. What a what a hoax that was. You know, I mean, it just he, as you say, it's the first thing that pops into his head, and I think the it's the first thing that pops into his head because it's the only thing he can think to associate Fauci with. I think that's 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 probably it. Speaking of crazy things, uh, Laura Logan, who is uh, on Fox, the former CBS correspondent, we talked about her on the podcast a little bit earlier. She went off on this bizarre rant where she's comparing Dr. Fauci to the Nazi doctor in Joseph Mengele, which was crazy in and of itself. She's apparently doubling down on that. There's been no pushback whatsoever from Fox. Anyone who is naive enough to think that, you know, Fox is going to say, hey, this is getting a little bit crazy. No, they're not. But do you see this little uh, interesting little tidbit where the the Auschwitz Memorial um, yes. tweeted something basically saying, um, Ms. Logan, you probably should not be comparing the Nazi death camps with Dr. Fauci or Dr. Fauci, the Nazi death camps. Laura Logan's response to being called out by the Auschwitz Memorial was to block Auschwitz on Twitter. Jesus Christ. Jesus. You I mean, can't freaking make this up. You know, and speaking of Fox and Wisconsin, uh, say Charlie is Paul Ryan still on the board? Yes, he is. There you he, go. He doesn't live here anymore, so he's, yeah. he's not. He's not one of us. But he is. but with Logan, it's amazing how often people say to me, you know, you you guys, you never Trumpers. Trump broke your brains. I feel like we're the people. Yeah, you know, we we're, we feel pretty strongly about Trump, um, but I feel like we're the people who are still capable of rational thought and don't have to be told by the Auschwitz Memorial not to compare, you know, an American doctor to Josef Mengele. Like to me, that's a broken brain. There's something wrong there. I mean, there's just something wrong with you as a human being. Even if you blurt it out and you did it for debaters imperative or for dramatic effect, you know, you get called out by the Auschwitz, Auschwitz. Museum and yeah. you say, you know, I got a, I got a little off the hook there. I still believe Fauci's wrong. You know, whatever it is you're going to say and say, but you know what? I, that was over the line. And instead it's like, again, what did I say a minute ago? Double down, hunker down, never apologize and power through it. And I, I just cannot imagine, you know, the first thing I thought when I saw that was, yeah, CBS was right. 
Okay, so no, you're right. I mean, if, if you ever get, if I ever got called up by the Auschwitz Memorial, this would be a moment of serious introspection. That's the kind of thing that might make me even get off Twitter. Just, for, just for a moment. Just for a moment. <laughs> okay, so um, on this theme of we need to take this seriously and act like adults, I think w- one of the areas where you know it's it's easy to make fun, as we talked about earlier. Of of Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Lauren Bobits and the Madison Cawthorns and the Paul Gosars and everything because they're so ridiculous. They are they are you know clown car folks. But on the other hand, they are also doing something that we need to take deadly seriously, which is they are normalizing the rhetoric and the attitudes that lead to political violence. And political violence is no joke. And it's amazing how we keep playing with the rhetoric and the language. As the evidence mounts that, hey, this is a really dangerous time and bad things can happen. And Mm. grownups would say at some point, all right, we're just not going to indulge our id um, in saying these various things because this would be a time for us to dial things down, to be more uh, circumspect in our language. None of that's happening. So, of course, Lauren Bober went, went off on. Elon Omar, and I'm, I'm not a fan of Elon Omar's politics. I want to make this clear, but she is a member of Congress. She deserves, and, and a human being who deserves, uh, you know, fundamental respect. But Lauren Boebert goes off on her with this anti-Muslim rant that she's part of the jihad squad, joking that, you know, that she didn't have a backpack. She was, she wasn't going to blow everybody up. Lauren Boebert got a, got some blowback on it. Just a little bit of the background on the story here. And appeared like she might be considering an apology, which, of course, never actually happens in the Trump era. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is now the ideological enforcer of Trump world, of MAGA world, uh, slapped her down and told Lauren Boebert, don't you dare apologize to somebody who, you know, hates America, who hates everything, who's a communist, who's, you know, pro, pro-Al-Qaeda or whatever. And, of course, Lauren Boebert, Lauren Boebert, um, listens to her master's voice. And when she mm-hmm. got on the phone with Elon Omar, she refused to apologize. The call ended badly, right? I mean, so. And then yesterday, Elon Omar had a press conference. One of those reality check moments where she said, look, this is the kind of thing that I'm getting as a result of the attacks from Lauren Boebert. Now, you know what I'm about to play, right? Yep. Okay, trigger warning to everybody. Yeah, Even is, by the standards this of this podcast. Stuff. Yeah, this is rough stuff. Even by the standards of this podcast, what you are about to hear is deeply disturbing, but it is the reality out there. It is, while we're all fun and games and playing our, you know, triggering the libs stuff, there are people out there who do what you're about to hear. And she has this press conference and she holds up her phone and plays a voicemail message. And again, There's a trigger warning. This is really rough stuff. Let's play it. I'm going to play you a voicemail that we received hours after I got off the phone with Representative Boebert after she posted her video. We see you, Muslim son of your bitch. We know what you're up to. You're all about taking over the country. Don't worry, there's plenty that will love the opportunity to take you off the face of the fucking earth. Come get it, bitch, you fucking Muslim piece of shit, you jihadist. We know what you are. You're a fucking traitor. You will not live much longer, bitch. I can almost guarantee you that. We the people are rising up. Oof. 
Tom, I, I don't know whether there's any commentary that I can I can offer there. Well, I, I'll just point out that first of all, I want to foot stomp a point you just made, which is um, I'm not a fan of Ilhan Omar as a politician or as a person, but she's a human being. She's an American citizen. She's a member of Congress, and I, you know, I maintain my right to disagree with her. Uh, you know, as an, as a fellow American citizen. This is something completely different. This isn't about politics. This is some sad, messed up, sounds half in the bag, you know, lost human being yeah. who thinks it's now okay. And and I have to tell you, Charlie, I you know, I know we've talked about this before. Most, I've gotten phone calls like that at, uh, because I have a public office and because people just feel like that's okay. I've gotten them. I a lot of people I know have gotten them. A lot of the never Trumpers have gotten them. A lot of journalists get them. The Republican party has normalized this as it's okay. It's okay to just do this. Now, you know, I think some of this is the, the effect of our internet age where there's, you know, I think you and I talked about this once where at least in the old days where you had to go look up a number or find an address right. and put a stamp on something, your the your your rational mind or your better nature would intercede for one moment and say, you know, you, your mother didn't raise you this way. Your grandparents wouldn't be proud of you. This is, I know you're mad. This thought went through your head. But the problem is now that the echo chamber is building in volume because there are now people, as you pointed out, the the conscience of the Republican Party, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, saying, no, never apologize. Um, you know, why not threaten people? I mean, she Taylor Greene gets right up to the edge of that and doesn't in, endorse it, but kind of shrugs and says, but, you know, I'd understand, right? I mean, she kind of encourages that, that um, environment. Um, which puts her in a pissing match with people like Nancy Mace, um, you know, with Boebert. Um, Trump was the godfather of all of this with, you know, knock the hell out of him, take him out of here on a stretcher, I'll pay your legal bills. They have normalized this kind of casual culture of threat and menace that surrounds the Republican Party. And uh, just one more comment about this. Yeah. This is the sign of a political movement that is deeply afraid and insecure. This is not how a political movement that believes in itself talks and reacts. Um, this is what happens. Frankly, this is the kind of phone call you make, not when you think you're winning, but when you think you're losing. Or when you think that all the guardrails are off, all the restraints right. are off. When and it just, just makes you feel better. When, when you're just feeling it, when you want to be right. tough and the testosterone is flowing and it's, it, 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 they've, they've unleashed something. Now, again, this is a math problem for me. Um, I think it's absolutely true that the vast, vast, vast majority, even of MAGA supporters are, are not going to engage in political violence. Uh, but we're a country of what? 300 million people. How, how many Americans are there? 330, what, three, 330. So let's say that 99% of Americans would have, would never engage in political violence, right? Fair, fair enough. Nine, wouldn't even, would not even consider it. Um, 1% of Americans is 3.3 million people. Yep. 1%. If there's just 1% of the country that thinks, you know what? Um, I've been told I need to go out and get my, my gun. I need to fight for freedom. 
Um, I need to be more like Kyle Rittenhouse, or I need to be more like whatever. Um, the people who are standing by and withstanding all of this stuff, um, that's three million people. It does not take a huge number of people with guns, with knives, with bombs to do a whole lot of really awful shit. And what, one of the things that strikes me about this, Charlie, is I was <clears throat> I was talking with um, Canadian – Chris, Canadians are just like – aghast at the, they think they find this like culturally incomprehensible, but I was doing a, um, a bit with Canadian radio and I said, you know, these are people that if you said, look, I surrender, I get you win. No. What do you want? They can't answer you. No, that would be because, boring. Because that would be boring. The whole point is the struggle. The whole point is yes. getting, getting off on that phone call and menacing someone saying, if, you know, if Omar said, okay, fine, I'm, re I'm resigning from Congress. You've driven me out of public life. Um, we're turning over the government to the MAGA Republicans. All right. You know, tell me what you want. And I think the answer would be, I, I hadn't even thought of that. I, you know, never got that far. Um, and I think that we saw that with, um, during the Trump the four years that Trump was president. Okay, you guys are in charge. What do you want to do? Well, I want to put in some left-wing trade protectionism, and I want to put in some right-wing, um, you know, performative immigration measures, and I want to, you know, piss on NATO, but not really. I mean, there's nothing here except the the kind of the primal yawp of, I'm just, my life sucks, and I'm pissed off, and so I'm going to threaten the life of a congressman. Okay, I wasn't going to get into this necessarily, or at least not right, right now, but uh, it looks like Roe versus Wade is going down. And I spent some time this morning reading essays from some really smart people who I really respect uh, saying that, OK, well, this actually might lead to a, a healthy moment in American politics because now um, the issue will be returned to the states. It doesn't ban abortion. And uh, we will have the political process will have to uh, come to some compromises, which has not been possible since 1973. So to a certain extent, this may this may actually lower the temperature of our politics. And I was reading that and I thought. This makes complete sense. I, I this is this is right. If in fact you hadn't been paying attention to what's been going on in the last five years in America, if you'd right. been in an, in an induced coma and had not watched the way in which our politics has become so irrationally inflamed. So on abortion, now that it goes back to the legislatures, if it does, if Roe goes goes down, um, you know, this is the moment where we will need to compromise at a moment when, as a country, we are incapable of that kind of compromise. Well, I think you were the, um, you were the one who repeated Windsor man's great comment yes. this morning. Uh, you know, we're yeah. a country that a country that's driven itself insane about masks is about to debate guns and abortion. What could exactly. go wrong? Exactly. Um, you know, but, but again, okay, you're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, do you really believe that you're actually putting a stop to abortions? Now, you know, 15 or 20 states will make abortions incredibly difficult to get. Um, the other 35 states will immediately enshrine abortion as a, as a legal right. And then I think it, my worst case scenario um, for this, as someone who thinks that abortion has to remain legal, and I, I have a lot of reasons why I think that, but I won't go into them here. But as somebody who thinks that the reality is that abortions happen, whether they're legal or not, um, is that you will go through four or five or six years of utter misery in these um, states that will restrict abortion. And then there will be a rollback and some kind of a return to something closer to Roe v. Wade. Because again, it's kind of, this kind of links to what we were just talking about with these threats. It's like, okay, you're going to win. You're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Now what? Oh, well, I didn't really, you know, because again, 
and, and I think somebody was pointing this out about evangelicals who are more your tribe than mine, but that evangelicals no. didn't really care about well, that you're more familiar with them, is <laughs> yeah, what I'm yeah. saying, as a, as a former <laughs> Midwest. I mean, I Please evangelicals know. to me are yeah. evangelicals to me are a complete mystery. Yeah. Um, but you were inside yeah. the conservative movement a, a lot longer. Um, that you know, the evangelical movement didn't really care about abortion until it became a resource for power. Um, you know, 25 or 30 years ago, yeah, and I think, sure. you know, the the problem is that this is going to be the, another case of ke- the dogs catching the car, right? Okay. You've, you won, you've got this Supreme court decision. Now, where are you going? What is your point here? Um, and See, you, you actually, you were the one who put out that piece by Henry Olson this morning. I don't, right. I don't right. usually think, I don't usually like a lot of Henry's columns, but even I had to agree that, yeah, okay, fine. You know, the right wing is going to, strike a big blow against Roe v. Wade. Now what? Yeah, now what are they going to do? And, and you know, H- Henry's stuff is, when, when he sticks to public opinion and analysis of public opinion polls, he's great. When he veers off into other stuff, that's when he, I think he becomes, when, we when say? He compares, when he compares Trump to Reagan, that's when I stop he, reading. Well, that's right. That's that's when it, that's when it goes off the rails. So, okay, so I, I, I should devote a much longer period of time to this because I have been pro-life for decades. Uh, it's been one of the animating uh, principles of my, my, my professional life. And, and so this is, this is, this is complicated because I do think that we need to have a culture of life that includes the unborn, but also includes, you know, people who have already been born. It includes uh, includes the elderly, it includes immigrants. It includes a lot of uh, people. Um, but over the years, I I guess as, as I, and I have thought a a great deal uh, about this issue and have spoken a great deal about this issue to the extent that I've evolved. It has been to think to, to regard the issue as, you know, one that is, is about hearts and minds. And, and I, and I think that the great change that could have occurred would be to change the culture, to make it more pro-life, to make people make the choice for life. Some of the things I was involved in, in Wisconsin were ads that were aimed at young women, vulnerable young women saying, you know, you have a choice to make, you, you know, you, you should make this, you know, consider this choice, consider what this would mean for you. And it was making a difference. It was actually moving the needle. You know, you know, the abortion rates were going down voluntarily. And so the worst thing that I think can happen is if we try to deal with this cultural moral issue through the criminal law. And I think that, that this is, this is the, the, the danger. Um, now there are, I think, legitimate restrictions on abortion and this is where most Americans are. And I think Henry Molson's piece points this out. You know, most Americans are not in the extremes, you know, they're not the no abortion, even in the case of rape or incest, and they're not for abortion at any time for any reason up until the moment of birth, including, you know, late term abortions. That is not where Americans are. Americans actually occupy a, a centrist position but as we've seen in our politics, um, that's a no man's land. Even though 60 percent of Americans may be centrist, that's not the way this will play out politically. They don't occupy a centrist position, Charlie. They occupy an anguished position. Yeah. Well, uh, and I think you know, that's yeah. yes, exactly. Yeah. And that that's <clears throat> where I I mean, I since I mentioned the evangelicals, I have to say that, you know, my religious tradition is when I'm Greek Orthodox, which is mm-hmm. a, you know, we are allowed to choose the life of the mother. Uh, you know, in, in a therapeutic situation. Um, but when I worked in politics, I worked for John Hines, who's mm-hmm. was a classic 
kind of moderate Republican of his day, right? Rape, incest, life of the mother, um, didn't really campaign on these kind of cultural hot button issues. And I think the, the mistake here, and, and as you say, it's not even a mistake. I think that the, the tinderbox is that you're going to have two groups of people going to the streets of the state capitals. One says no abortion ever, um, you know, like the Texas law. Um, and we're going to criminalize it. And the other, I think, makes the terrible mistake of saying on demand without apology and hopefully with federal funds. Right. And, you know, th- that's just not, I mean, there, um, Roe, I, I hate, I always hated Roe just because I thought it was, I, I shouldn't say I hate the decision. I always, I was one of those conservatives who said, wow, this, this is not a decision that seems to a layman like me grounded in anything other than some Supreme Court justices saying, well, we need to do this. Um, on the other hand, as time has gone on, I've come to admire that it, it did kind of extinguish a lot of social warfare to say, this is a real thing that you are not, and this is where partly where I come down, a real thing that you are not going to stop from happening. All you are going to do is make it more dangerous and, and, um, you know, kill a lot of, uh, people that are already living. And I agree with your comment about, um, the culture of life. You know, I wish that extended to children that were actually already here because I'm, and, and this is my confession about the whole pro-life versus pro-choice thing. I am very cynical about professional pro-lifers because it always feels to me like the stalking horse for a more general issue of political power. And I'm more, co- I've always been more comfortable with the people who, you know, say, look, I'm pro-life, but I, you know, I'm anguished. I find this a difficult thing. I understand how, you know, most Americans feel, but the kind of the radical pro-lifers, much like the radical pro-choicers who say this is, you know, a, an issue for political mobilization that, that really bothers me because it's a painful, anguishing issue. And most Americans I think are, are caught between those, those two camps. Right, and and I think you're going to see this played out in some of the the legislative fights. Um, and again, we're normally the the ideal circumstances. People get in a room and they go, "Okay, can we live with this? Can we live with that?" Nobody gets everything they want, but I, I'm not sure that the political extremes that drive this debate are are going to uh, go along with that. So, if they try to codify this at the federal level, what what would that legislation look like? Um, Henry Olson's piece also points out that here's the warning to pro-lifers: is right now there is a strong majority of people that oppose the kinds of things that they have decided are are the litmus tests. I mean, there are, you know, reasonable restrictions. I, I think, you know, there have been polls that show that when people are asked about things like notification of parents and some industry that here's, you know, they're, they're, people have contradictory positions, you know? Um, I, I was at a, when I was in DC, I was at a, uh, a bar now of blessed memory, this, uh, the French joint that, uh, the guy defected in, in Georgetown. And I was in there having a drink after work and there was a pro-choice march that was coalescing that night. And there was going to be a big, you know, march for abortions, right? Abortion rights. And I was talking to some of the marchers and when they found out I worked for a Republican Senator, you know, it kind of came mm-hmm. all, and I'm like, look, I'm the foreign policy guy. I don't do this. Um, but you know, but I said, you are going to lose important fights here because the public is not where you are, even if their hearts are with, it must stay legal. Um, and as you just pointed out, you know, kind of trying to push the public to embrace all we believe about this as a positive good. I, 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 I still can't believe that there was this whole, you know, internet movement about shout your abortion and no, how, how did abortion, you know, improve my life? You can't, this is not, 
you know, real people, this comes back to what we started with, grow up, act like adults. Real human beings approach these situations with great trepidation and heartbreak and, and concern. And that's the way, or I think normal human beings um, think about this, just as they should about the death penalty and euthanasia and everything that involves life. You are dealing with the most serious thing in the world, and it can't just be reduced to bumper stickers like that. Well, I, I understand the argument from uh, some of our pro-life friends who are going to say, look, um, as a result of what the Supreme Court is going to do, human lives will be saved. Children will be born who will grow up and and li- live their lives who would not otherwise have done so. And this is true. On the other hand, my concern is that what's about to happen in our political culture is that the entire issue, of course, becomes radicalized, becomes extreme in the way that we've been discussing it. And as as a result of that, more decisions will be made to go ahead with the abortion. In other words, there's not going to be this transition in public opinion like with gay marriage i don't see yeah. that happening i thought um, when henry brought I mean, that up i thought he was off the rails i, he's I like, think he was oh, to- he was totally henry we, yeah well you know the public's opinion will change just like it did no. about gay marriage no it could go anything, the other way yeah it'll it, go the other way exactly it could, it could go the other way and so this is always going to be a matter of personal choice i think there had been a trend that more and more women um and and in part responding to changes in in medicine uh, I think the ultrasound has been a, just a dramatic a, a shift in, in people's attitudes. I think that more and more people, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, women, were making the decision to go ahead with the birth. But this may change. And so that, yes, the changing the law might save some lives, but it's not clear to me that it'll be a net gain if, 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 well, if, if in fact, if in fact the, the, the culture um, the, the culture does with abortion what it does, what it, what it is doing with every other issue that we're dealing Amer- with. I hope people understand and, and what Americans, I'm trying to get at here. I'm, you know. I, well, and the case that supports your point, Charlie, when we're talking as though this didn't happen or that we didn't have a test case, and it's called Ireland. Mm-hmm. You know, well, the Irish said, okay, we're going to, you know, clamp the, but they're, I mean, literally, you know, Irish mothers would go to Belfast to deliver because they didn't want to be in a situation where if their lives were in danger, the doctor would say, well, what are you going to do? You know, my hands are tied. The, you know, um, I mean, I, I know of cases where, you know, back in the day, uh, and this was, it's not like I know of them. It's not like it was a big secret, but I, I knew people in Ireland who actually had situations where when you were about to deliver, you went to Northern Ireland where abortion was permissible. And if there was a complication, you could have a therapeutic abortion. Then finally, you know, the whole thing is put to a referendum and lo and behold, the Irish people said, okay, you know what? Abortion's legal in Ireland. That, yeah. And I think Henry's idea that somehow everybody's going to nod gravely and say, finally, you know, we can now be free to ban abortion. I don't think it's, it's going to happen. And I, I'll, I'll just add, I understand the pro-life argument that there will be lives saved. I understand they view it that way. I also think there will be lives lost. Well, that's right. And, I'm, des- I'm, and destroyed. I mean, there, there are, this is not a consequence free, um, you know, moral choice. And this is why I think as you, and maybe this is where I'm a small C conservative. This is where I don't want the government making kind of, you know, blanket. Well, I, I'm just uncomfortable with the whole thing in part, as you know, and I know we've discussed, I mean, my, my mother nearly died from an illegal abortion. And, um, you know, I, I, mm. it's hard for me to look at it 
it's kind of like my dad was in Japan, was about to go to Japan before 1945. So it's hard for me to be rational about the nuclear bomb. Um, you know, my mom nearly died from an illegal abortion. So I'm, I've always been kind of conflicted about what to say about that. Well, no, understandably. Well, let me just read two paragraphs about how conflicted Americans are on this particular issue and why this is going to be so fraught. Um, Carlin uh, Bowman from uh, the uh, American Enterprise Institute has put together this uh, this amazing study of attitudes about abortion over the years and sort of sums it up this way. Uh, opinion about abortion is complex. Americans appear to be simultaneously pro-life and pro-choice. Yes. Significant numbers of people say abortion is an act of murder. They also say the decision to have an abortion should be a personal choice. These are contradictory sentiments. He said sentiments. Yet many people hold them at the same time. Many see no reason to resolve the tensions in these positions. They believe in the sanctity of life and the importance of individual choice. Most Americans do not want the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. They are, however, willing to put some restrictions on abortion's use. Although the questions are not asked regularly, majorities of Americans favor the notification of partners, parental consent for a teenager seeking an abortion, and 24-hour waiting periods. They say abortion should be generally legal in the first trimester, but oppose it in the second and third trimesters. These opinions regarding restrictions highlight the nuanced nature of American public opinion on abortion. And Tom, as we go back to our earlier talk, nuance is the most dangerous place to be in American politics right now. Well, nuance is where <laughs> adults live. Um, you know, grownups who have, you know, gotten past these categorical, uh, um, you know, that all cases are alike. And I think that's where, you know, again, most people are. And I think they can be, the problem, the problem that the, um, that polling runs into is say, is abortion, is abortion murder? And people are like, yeah, sure. Uh, should abortion be legal? Absolutely. Because when you're asking them that question, and by the way, thanks for dragging me into a long conversation about abortion, Charlie. I know, I know, uh, I know, I know. <laughs> but I think when you ask people that question, they think of in the circumstance I am thinking of, right? It's bad, and in right. the other circumstance that I am thinking of, it's okay. So when you say, you know, it's murder, well, because it's in the eighth month of pregnancy and it's an inconvenience and we're going to fake a therapeutic abortion to just get rid of the baby and it's murder. Okay. Um, but if it's the product of rape or incest and it's within the first trimester and I want it to be legal. And that's the problem is that those questions don't ask the secondary question about well, when do you think, you know, yeah. to his credit, Henry put some of that in there about, well, if you're a married woman, if you're an unmarried woman, if the, you know, if you're, if there's a fetal defect, if there's rape, if there's incest, but the notion that, you know, well, people want it to be legal and illegal at the same time, you have to dig under that and say, in what circumstance, in what, what's the circumstance in their mind when they're answering um, those questions? And I think, you know, this is, this is why this attempt to simply say, I'll just back up and say, Appalling. I think things like the Texas law, I think it's just sadistic. Yeah. I think there is a, there's was a intended sadism yeah. there that I mm -hmm. think, you know, but I also think that, um, there, the, the, the other side that just says, well, you know, just a clump of cells and, uh, it's, uh, you know, like clipping your fingernails, there's a casualness and a trivialization there that I, I just don't think, um, you know, speaks to the, to, to the, to the moral sense that most people have about this. Okay. And I think, unfortunately, the whole debate is being conducted by people who are oftentimes paragons of bad faith. So let's, let's end 
with one of the few grown-ups in American politics. This is uh, just we, we want to end up if having this discussion about how we all need to grow up uh, and act like adults. Here is one of the very rare grown-ups, at least in the Republican Party. This is Liz Cheney. If you haven't heard it, Liz Cheney talking about uh, Donald Trump putting out a statement saying he wanted to debate uh, the 2020 election. Here's her response. President Trump continues to make the same false claims about a stolen election with which he has misled millions of Americans. These are the same claims he knows provoked violence in the past. He has recently suggested that he wants to debate members of this committee. This committee's investigation into the violent assault on our Capitol on January 6th is not a game. When this committee convenes hearings, witnesses will be called to testify under oath. Any communications Mr. Trump has with this committee will be under oath. Yes. And if he persists in lying then, he will be accountable under the laws of this great nation and subject to criminal penalties for every false word he speaks. Oh, please. Oh, bring it oh, on. Wow. Oh, bring it on. You know, and you're right, Liz Cheney, that's an, that's an adult. You may not agree with her about a lot of things, but that's an adult. That's that's someone who's taking this with the kind of requisite seriousness and gravity uh, that this situation requires. And Trump, by comparison, still thinks that this is just TV. It's just reality TV, that he can talk his way out of it. And, and you know, he might. I mean, again, mm-hmm. doubling down works because we're a country, we're an unserious country with a short attention span. But I, if I were, you know, up against uh, Liz Cheney, I, I would be, um, th- that's, uh, I would be realizing that I'm up against somebody who doesn't give a, give a hoot about my bullshit um, and is just going to keep plowing away at it. And I think one thing that I worry about with the Republicans winning in 2022 is they will shut down this whole process. Oh, they definitely will. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt about it whatsoever. Um, we also have to mention, of course, the, the, the new revelation from uh, former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, that in fact, uh, Trump had uh, tested positive for coronavirus before his debate with Joe Biden. Um, and our colleague Tim Miller says the evidence is there that that Donald Trump actually tried to kill Joe Biden with a coronavirus showing up in the debate, shouting, spitting, yelling across the room. And he also showed up apparently after this test with a group of gold star parents. And then because there's no bottom to his depravity, he actually tried to blame them, suggesting that maybe they gave him the thing. But again, this is this is who he is. Well, he's I think depraved was the right word. I mean, this is. Um, this is a guy who thinks only in terms of his own. I mean, he is, um, narcissistic beyond all reckoning. Um, other human beings are not human beings. They're simply raw material, um, for him to use at any given moment. And, you know, I thought first thing I thought when it, of course we all suspected this right during, and I remember we were all talking about this back during the first debate where we looked at him and said, who's he kidding? He's sick. I mean, he doesn't look well. Right. Um, and, and you know, I, I'm surprised he didn't just walk up and try and, you know, spit on Biden or something, uh, you know, to, to, to make him sick. But to, to then go and meet with and Gold Star families and uh, cops, 
Yeah. Right. Well, you know, you can't stop them. And Hope Hope Hicks, you know, can't stop these people from hugging us. What are you going to do? You know, um, it's you it's do? depraved. It's depraved. And people are going to vote for this again. And you know that that's that's how you know we're in trouble as a democracy is that there are people who would gladly put this guy in control of the nuclear arsenal for four more and they years. Will, yeah. And and if he had spitted Biden, people would have said, "Hey, he fights. He fights." Right. So the newsletter, the New Atlantic newsletter is called Peacefield, which means that if I ever go on my own and have my own newsletter, it would be called Obnoxious and Disliked. So it would be kind of, <laughs> kind of a, a bookend to Peacefield. You should hear the names we rejected, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> Tom, thanks for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.